The title of this message is Everything is Found in Christ. Everything is Found in Jesus Christ. Paul Harvey, he tells a, a story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. He coats his knife with blood and lets it freeze. Then he adds another coat of blood and then another. As each coat freezes, he adds another smear of blood until the blade is coated over by layers of frozen blood. Then he buries the knife, blade up, in the frozen tundra. The wolf catches the scent of the fresh blood and begins to lick it. He licks it more feverishly until the blade is bare. Then he keeps on licking harder, and because of the cold, he never notices the pain of the blade on his tongue. His craving for the taste of blood is so great that, the, that he licks the blade till he bleeds to death, swallowing his own life. And that is a vivid picture of how false teachers serve their false teaching. It's deceptive, and we need to take seriously its danger for us as a church. And this might remind you of Paul's warning in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30, where he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So false teachers, they present everything nicely. They're per per persuasive. They want your eyes off of Jesus Christ. And they're cunning and deceptive. And they package their presentations in such a way as to make you believe and want what they're selling. So what are they selling? And should the church be interested? Should we give an ear to their arguments? Falling prey to false teacher will put us on a dangerous path to nowhere. So what can help us in this battle for truth? How can we as a church discern error? How can we guard our hearts and our minds from being deceived? I want to put before you this, this morning what Paul is going to put before us in our passage. The solution, the solution to all false teaching is a growing knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ and the gospel. And it's always, always, always about Christ and the gospel. Believe and be convinced that Christ is central to everything. He's supreme and he's sufficient. And that's what we've been learning so far in Colossians. All of chapter 1 has been pointing to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And now we enter chapter 2, and it's still all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's been said that Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. He's preeminent. And you need nothing else if you possess him. Everything is found in Christ. That's where the title comes from. However, that truth doesn't always compute in our heads or even shown as a reality in our lives, meaning that our problem isn't always understanding or intellectual. Our problem is that it doesn't move beyond our head to our hearts, and therefore it doesn't impact our lives. It's like we're not moved and we're not motivated. We know the Bible accounts. We've heard plenty of sermons, but rather than Christ becoming more glorious and beautiful, we become bored, we become indifferent. And we tend to live more by sight and more by sense than by faith in Christ and his word. We trust our feelings more than our firm foundation. And we're always looking for more, always looking for something beyond Christ to meet our needs. 
And if you look ahead a little bit to Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, we'll see, we'll see how Paul describes Christ in relation to who we are. He says, Christ, who is your life. Christ is your life. That's, that's moving, that's motivating, that's invigorating. John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So that answers the question, what's eternal life? It's knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, everything is found in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in him. And this understanding of what we have in Christ is so important that Paul's going to use it in the battle against false teaching. So how do, how do we keep from being deceived? Again, a true knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what you have in being united to him by faith. So in verses 2 to 5 of chapter 1 here in Colossians, we're going to see Paul's great struggle for believers to know the riches of knowing Christ so that you wouldn't be deluded by false teaching. And if you're taking notes, here's your outline. Number one, Paul's affection, verse 21. Verse 1, followed by Paul's aim, verses 2 and 3, Paul's admonition, verse 4, and Paul's absence, verse 5. Paul's affection, Paul's aim, Paul's admonition, and Paul's absence. First, Paul's affection, verse 1. I'll read it again. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. So right from the start, we get a sense of Paul's love and affection for believers in Christ, for brothers and sisters in Christ, even for those whom he has never met. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. I care for you. I love you, and I want you to know this. Understand this, Paul is saying. I'm contending for you. I'm struggling for you. I'm agonizing for you. And Paul, he used a similar word just one verse before. If you look at chapter 1, verse 29, you'll see there it says, where Paul says, For this I, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul spends himself for the highest good of other believers. And in addition to that, in our verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul also has an inward battle as well. He has an internal struggle for these believers, a deep spiritual concern for the welfare of, of, of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And the questions we need to ask are, why is, why is Paul struggling for them? What is it that he wants from them? What does he want to see in their lives? He wants to see them grow in, the, in their knowledge of Christ, verse 2. He wants them to understand what they have in him, verse 3. And it's all for a very specific reason, that they wouldn't be deluded, verse 4. And before we cover those verses, let's remember Paul's situation and the situation in and around Colossae. The city of Colossae was one of three cities in the Lycus Valley, the other two being Laodicea, mentioned in our passage, which is a neighboring city 10 miles west, and Hierapolis, about 15 miles northwest. It was in this region of the Lycus Valley that false teaching was beginning to infiltrate these churches. And this was a group of young churches that Paul was greatly concerned for. We know he didn't f 
found this church. He didn't, wasn't the one that brought the gospel to them, but it was Epaphras, one who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Paul. So this, these, these young churches, they, they haven't lost their way, and they weren't living in grave error, but they needed to be encouraged about the person and work of Christ, and they needed to be warned about the false teachers and false teaching. They needed to know very simply who Christ was. He's enough for them. And in Christ, they have everything they need to live a life pleasing to him. Paul wanted to see these young believers not only start off well in the faith, but to continue on and to finish well. And it's why he prays for their spiritual maturity and why he labors and toils to see them mature in Christ. He wants to see them growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, not to be harmed or deluded by these false teachers. And this is really a battle for truth. The battle for truth is the battle that Paul was greatly struggling for. And the, the word struggle here, it has the idea of striving and intensity and agony. And this isn't, this isn't the kind of struggle you have that refers to persecution, but it refers to Paul's heart, his inner longing to see the believers formed more into the image of Christ. He didn't want harm to come to the believers. He wanted to see the church loving, learning, and living in Christ. And if you're a parent, we can understand this kind of great struggle that Paul had. If you're a parent, it's that kind of struggle, that parental anxiety that we have, that deep concern and responsibility that we we feel for the well-being of our children. And not, not that we show partiality, but that sense of great struggle has greater weight and higher pressure on those whom we love more. Meaning that the more we love someone, the more of a great struggle we'll have for them. And for parents, this is automatic for your children. We live and die with every success and failure in the life of our children and in the life of those whom, that we, lo- whom we love. And in a similar way, for Paul, who is a minister of God, his great struggle was also automatic because he loved God and he loved God's people, the church. And it's worth noting, Paul is writing this letter from prison, as, as we, we know. He doesn't even know their names or faces. They're personally unknown to him, but he, yet he has a great concern for them. In other words, although personally unknown to Paul, they were spiritually dear to him. His struggle isn't that he's in prison. His struggle is for the, the well-being of those whom he's writing to. So we see here Paul's love and affection. He's pulled in. He's connected to these believers. His mind and heart aren't bound by chains and walls. His concern, we see, is even more than his, more than his concern for himself. And his heart is for these believers. And it flows from his heart that loves the Lord. Paul's concern for believers is found throughout his writings, throughout the New Testament. For example, in in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote in the 11th chapter about all the suffering that he experienced as a servant of Christ and as a minister of the gospel. And he ends that section after listing all the sufferings and persecutions that he suffered. In verses 28 and 29, he ends the section by saying this. He says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? That's Paul's affection. We see it in the words. Paul has the internal 
pressure, the daily anxiety, a healthy concern for the welfare of other believers. Meaning, if someone isn't spiritually strong, if someone is in danger of falling away, Paul feels deeply for them. He's not indifferent to them. When they're weak, Paul is weak. And when someone is made to fall, we're, we're told Paul is indignant. He doesn't take that lightly. It presses him. Another example, in writing to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says he's in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. Paul knows everything is found in Jesus Christ. And he wants these believers to know that they have everything in Christ. Paul's great struggle, his affection for believers, was that they would love the truth, learn the truth, and live the truth. Now, does that shock, does that shock you at all? Doesn't that kind of heart and love and affection seem so rare these days in the church? Paul hasn't even met these people, yet he has an agonizing struggle for them. How that should open our eyes, how that should humble us, Paul is struggling for strangers. And we have a hard enough time, if we're honest, having a great struggle for those who are closest to us. And this is more than just thoughts in our mind. This this arises from the heart. This is a fervent wrestling for those you love, to see them grow in their knowledge of Christ. And the penetrating question for us is, for whom do you have this kind of struggle for? For whom do you have this kind of struggle for? We must pray for each other. Our love for each other will be the motivation behind those prayers. And in our prayer, we'll be greatly struggling because of how much we love, how much love we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's be a picture of the gospel, not only within this church, but outside in the community that we live in. Let's not be indifferent to the spiritual well-being of the people who sit around us. And let's not be consumed with ourselves. Let's count others more significant. Brothers and sisters, let us be able to say what Paul says. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. That's Paul's affection. What exactly was Paul's goal or purpose for these believers? This takes us into verses 2 and 3. Paul's aim, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in verses 2 and 3, we're going to see two aims that Paul had for these believers. Two aims. The first one, Paul, the first aim Paul has is that their hearts may be encouraged. Paul was struggling on their behalf, and one of the purposes was because he wanted their hearts to be encouraged. And this refers to inner strength, to be be strong on the inside. Paul has in mind chapter 1, verse 28. Look at it, chapter 1, verse 28. It's through proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that they may be strengthened in heart, encouraged in heart. Paul wants mature saints because mature saints have inner strength. And let's not misunderstand Paul here. The believers weren't discouraged, and here Paul is saying that he wants to pick them up. 
Paul's not defining the heart like the world does. It's not just an emotion. It's not just the warm fuzzies. It's not just the Disney Channel kind of heart that, we, that, we, that Paul is talking about here. The heart, when used in Scripture, often refers to the center of personality, the source of willing, thinking, and feeling. It's the inner man that includes all of those areas, the mind, the will, and the emotions. So putting, to, putting all of this together, Paul isn't saying that believers were down emotionally and needed encouragement. Rather, he's saying that they needed to be strengthened in the inner man to continue to fight the battle for truth. So why? Why? Because the context tells us because false teachers were seeking to delude believers with plausible arguments, verse 4. Paul wanted them to be strengthened in their entire being, to be able to stand strong when, when the false, teacher, false teaching comes their way, to know what was true and right. They needed intellectual strength and volitional strength along with emotional strength. And the church in our day is not much different from the church in the first century. We need to know this. What passes for truth these days is hardly truth. Anything goes. Whatever you want to believe is truth. It's no longer God who defines truth, but each individual now determines truth on any basis that they feel led. And to believe in objective truth is to be inhuman, unkind, unloving, intolerant, and even insane. This is why we need to see the importance of Paul's aim. Our very essence of who we are needs to be encouraged. To, we need to be strengthened, to call to action, to, to call alongside the word means. It's the word used of a rallying call, a word leaders would use to urge each other on. And you can think of a hesitant soldiers or hesitant sailors being encouraged to courageously go into battle. That's what Paul wants for these believers, not to give up in the fight. He wants to encourage their hearts for them to be equipped to fight the battle for truth. And we come to church every Sunday, and we hear Christ preached, and we hear truth. But Monday through Saturday, we hear all sorts of things claiming to be truth. The world, as you already know, is becoming more and more active and aggressive toward the Christian faith. Pop culture and media, education institutions, friends, business associates, people, all, everything around us is seeking to fill our minds and steer us in the wrong direction. But Paul, he wants us to be ready, be ready to, be, to engage people with truth, not to be swayed by every wind of doctrine. And Paul will continue in verse 2, showing us how. Paul says in verse 2, continuing on, by being knit together in love, by being knit together in love. And this word knit together, it has a wide range of meaning. It could mean to unite. And if taken that way, then Paul is talking about unity, being united in love with one another. We're united to Christ. If united to Christ, united to one another. And although that's an amazing truth, I don't think Paul's talking about unity here. He's going to address that in chapter 3. But in context of chapter 2, he's dealing with false teachers. So we know the word knit together has a wide range of meaning. It can also mean to bring together. It can also mean to bring together. So how is Paul going to bring it together for these believers? 
It's through teaching them in love. It's the idea here of hearing something and it finally makes sense to you. It finally clicks in your mind. It's when you hear someone say, it finally all came together for me. Paul is going to strengthen their hearts by instructing them in love, helping them draw the right conclusions by helping them think rightly and biblically about Jesus Christ and the gospel. He's going to bring teaching on Jesus Christ and he's going to solidify the gospel in their minds. Paul is addressing the mind. The context helps us here. Look at verse 2. He talks about the mind, understanding, and knowledge. In verse 3, he talks about, being, about wisdom and knowledge. And in verse 4, he talks about being deluded with plausible arguments. Also, interestingly, every time the word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's translated in this way. It means to instruct or to make known or to teach. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct? That's the word. So as to instruct him. <clears throat> so that's what Paul has in mind here. This was Paul's great concern. He's battling for their minds. He wants to instruct their minds about Christ, and he does so in love. So summing up this first aim of Paul, he wants them to be equipped to fight the battle for truth. And the way that he's going to do that, the way he's going to strengthen their hearts is by bringing it together for them, through teaching them in love, instructing them, helping them draw the right conclusions. And Paul, he knows where the action is. He knows where the battle for truth takes place. It's in the, in the mind. It's in the heart. And so he wants to encourage your mind so that you're engaged, you're ready to engage people with truth. That's the first aim. That's Paul's first aim. Paul's second aim is for their spiritual wealth. Spiritual wealth. He says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Notice the words here, riches and treasures. And also notice the word all all the riches, and all the treasures. Knowing Christ is, is something of great value, and Paul wants the believers to know that value. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Paul's talking here about more than understanding. If you look down at the text, he's talking about a fully assured understanding this is full conviction, a recognition of the riches, the wealth, the value, the abundance of goods that are found in Christ alone. This is a settled commitment to the faith and a settled conviction about Christ. And this assurance is informed, as we know, by our true and real knowledge. A knowledge that knows, a knowledge that believes, a knowledge that is convinced that God is good, that He's loving that he's gracious, that he's merciful, he's forgiving, and he's sufficient. And we see this fully assured understanding in many of the saints who have gone before us. We see it in their lives. One example would be Polycarp. He was a bishop of Smyrna who lived in the first and second century. And he died a martyr because he refused to deny Jesus. As he was bound at the stake, 
prepared to be burned, he was urged to reproach Christ and to be set free. And these were his words. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp had a, had a settled conviction and a settled commitment to Christ. He had full assurance of understanding. Jeremiah Burroughs also said this. He said, I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. Though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Full assurance of understanding. And let it be said that you can be convinced of the wrong things and you can know the right things and not be convinced of them. Paul is after a fully assured understanding. He doesn't want a partial knowledge, a theoretical knowledge, a surface knowledge. He wants believers to have an unshakable, not-to-be-doubted knowledge. A knowledge of what, we should ask? Of our hearts, of our culture, of our environment. He wants us to reach the full knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself. Knowledge of Christ himself. And what you think about Christ is everything. What you think about Christ is everything. Not too long ago, we covered verses 15 to 20. If you believe verses 15 and 20, if you believe that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one whom all things were created by, through, and for, the one who is before all things and in him all things hold together, if you believe that he's the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe, if he's the head of the church, that he's preeminent, that he's a redeemer, and that he's reconciled you to God by his blood, if you believe all of that, then your vision of Christ ought to shape and change how you live your life. It's the supremacy of Jesus Christ, his greatness, that assures us of his sufficiency, that he's enough for us. It's the supremacy of Christ, his greatness, that assures us of the sufficiency of Christ, that he's enough. Because he's great, he's enough. Paul wants them and us to be fully assured of and fully convinced of Christ himself. And if you're a believer here this morning, we know him. He's in us, the hope of glory, in this Christ that we know and believe in. Look at verse 3. Are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's where we get our title. Everything is found in Christ. And in Christ, you have everything. That means that, means that in order for you to understand spiritual truth and lead a life pleasing to God, all you must do is look to Christ. It's all found in him. Christ is sufficient. A quick observation for us here. Look at the first two words of verse 3. In whom? In whom? We learn here that Scripture doesn't point us to a system or a program or a list of do's and don'ts, but it points us to a person. It's in whom? In Christ. Jesus, a living, a living Savior, a present person, and the only one who can care for our souls. So how do we reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding? 
by going to a person, by looking to Jesus Christ. Everything is found in him. Paul, he uses words that the false teachers were using, such as mystery and wisdom and knowledge. These false teachers claimed that they were the only ones who had, who had access to the mysteries of God's truth. They claimed to be the spiritually elite, the only ones who knew the secret to higher wisdom. They were the only ones who had the keys to unlock transcendent knowledge. So in opposition to these false teachers, he declares that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ alone. We're also told in 1 Corinthians 1.24 these words, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. And sometimes, sadly, that's not so apparent to us. Yes, we hear teaching about Christ, and yes, we believe the truth about Christ, and yes, we sing about Christ, but is Christ your treasure? Is he of great value to you? Alexander McLaren said, said this, quote, In Christ, as in a great storehouse, lie all the riches of spiritual wisdom, the massive bars of solid gold, which when coined into creeds and doctrines are the wealth of the church, all which we can know concerning God and man, concerning sin and righteousness and duty, concerning another life, is in him, who is the home and deep mind where truth is stored, the central fact of the universe and the perfect encyclopedia of all moral and spiritual truth is Christ, the incarnate word, the lamb slain, the ascended king, end quote. The point is Christ is valuable. Paul, again, showing his affection, Paul, in a sense, is saying here, here's the best way I can serve you. Here's the greatest way I can, I can be of service to you. It's to constantly point you to Jesus Christ. His treasures are inexhaustible. You don't have to go mining anywhere else to find truth. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Christ is more than you need and everything. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are <clears throat> sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And let's not forget Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. If Christ can be sufficient in something like your eternal destiny, he can be sufficient when your health fails when you lose your job, when you can't pay the bills, when you don't like the way you look, when loved ones die, when family members break your heart, Christ is sufficient. He is enough. All that life in a fallen world brings your way when you're at a loss of what to do, when giving up seems like the best option and there's no more hope. Know that what you need most in life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. You might, you might know the, the missionary, Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China in the 1800s. He said, Were it not for the consciousness of Christ in my life, 
hour by hour, I could not go on. But he is teaching me the glorious lessons of his efficiency, and each day I am carried onward with no feeling of strain or fear of collapse. Why do so many things keep us from going to Christ, the one in whom all things are found? Paul, in Philippians 4, says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of face, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul, just like as he's writing the Colossians, is in prison as he writes to the Philippians. And he's writing about sufficiency. He, he can be content because Christ is enough. Christ is Paul's contentment. So he can depend on Christ for everything. Any situation, Christ is his contentment. And therefore, Christ is enough for Paul. In 419 Philippians, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Every need supplied. All your bases are covered. Look no further than Jesus Christ. He's your one-stop shop, you can say. Joseph Parker, a name you probably haven't heard, he was a contemporary of Spurgeon in London. And when he was preaching to his congregation from Psalm 23, he got up and he started reading, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he stopped. He dramatically closed his Bible and said to his congregation, That is enough. Christ is enough. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Brothers and sisters, Christ is your shepherd. You lack nothing. You have everything you need. You don't lack wisdom. You don't lack knowledge. You don't lack power. His treasures are inexhaustible, and his power is limitless. You just go to him. His treasures are inexhaustible. Embrace Christ and all that you have in being united to him. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're hidden in Christ. Not in the sense of hidden like in a secret place and you need a secret key in order to unlock and find it. It's hidden in the sense that it's stored up. All wisdom and knowledge are stored up in the person of Jesus Christ. It means they're all his. He owns them. He controls them, and he grants them to anyone who believes in him. So you have everything that you need for life and godliness. You have all the resources to grow spiritually and live a life pleasing to him. So may you seek him as your treasure. There's nothing more valuable. And if you're here or listening on the live stream and not a believer, Know this, Christ is sufficient for, your, for every necessity of life. What you need most, you will not find anywhere else. It's only found in Jesus Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him, but they're hidden to the blind. 
hidden to the unbelieving. Truth isn't found in books or philosophy or psychology or education. Truth is found in a person. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. Listen to this quote from John MacArthur. He says this. He says, when someone asks, what does the gospel offer me? What does the Bible offer? You say this, Jesus Christ. That's the person that Christianity offers. And in him, complete salvation. And in him, complete forgiveness. And in him, complete victory. And in him, complete sufficiency. To have him is to have everything. Not to have him is to have nothing. So unbeliever, be saved today. There's no process for salvation. There's nothing you need to do. There's nothing to earn. Jesus Christ has already earned everything that you need. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone to save you. So Paul's aim is a settled conviction and a settled commitment in Christ, one that is founded upon a true knowledge of Christ, a knowledge that informs everything in our life, the way we see everything, what we desire, what we want, our words, actions, and thoughts. And where do we get these resources? In Christ. And we need wisdom, and we need knowledge, and they're all found in the person of Jesus Christ. Are you treasuring Christ? Are you treasuring Christ in a way that through trial and suffering you have confidence because Christ is everything to you? Are you living in such a way that you're strengthened in your inner being with the truth that if you possess Christ, you possess all because he's all in all? May God help you to know more and more the joy of knowing Christ the one who is beyond compare, the one of whom Paul spoke these words, and it's a good word for us as well. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We've seen Paul's affection for the spiritual well-being of believers. We've seen his aim for their minds and hearts to be fully assured. We've seen where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. And now... We, know, we learn that this knowledge isn't just for knowledge's sake, but it's for a specific purpose Paul has, which takes us to verse 4. Look at it with me. Paul's admonition, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul here provides us the perfect transition. We just learned about Christ's supreme value and how a growing knowledge of him will help you in and through every situation and circumstance in life. And here, in context, we see that a growing knowledge of, of the Savior will kill any ability for the false teaching to gain any ground. It's going to keep you from being tricked by, by false teachers. And Paul here, he finally gets to what he's been working towards. So far, he's been indirectly addressing the the problems the Colossians were facing. But here he begins to face them head on. And he's going to spend the rest of chapter 2 instructing the Colossians against false teachers. He's going to sound the warnings for this, this church that he has a great concern for, whom he has never met. He's going to sound the warnings. 
Beware. Let no one delude you with plausible arguments. Look down at verse 8, chapter 2. Beware. Let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Verse 16, chapter 2. Beware. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. Paul is going to be teaching them that Christ is enough. Beware of the false teachers and, and what they're trying to do. Don't give any attention to them. What they're selling, don't buy it. What they're promising, it won't deliver. What they're pr- promoting is of no value. Have nothing to do with them and have everything to do with Jesus Christ. He wants these believers to guard themselves from, from the enticing words the persuasive speech, the smooth talk, the fine-sounding arguments of the false teachers. And one thing to note here is that the false teachers, were told, sounded reasonable, plausible. They seemed to make sense, but it was all miscalculated like bad math. It might look good on paper, but when you really look at it, the numbers are wrong. Famously said, all that glitters isn't gold. And that's what makes these false teachers and their teachings so dangerous. The best lies we know are the ones surrounded by the most truth. And the false teaching endangering the believers was, was very serious. Again, their, their arguments were plausible, which tells us what they said was false, we know, but their manner, their presentation was such that people readily believed them. It shows us how easy it's to be, it is to be carried away, how easy it is to be enticed. And since it's so easy, we need to make sure we saturate ourselves with Christ. We need to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly to be able to discern error. Like anything counterfeit, we know, the best means to recognizing something false is by knowing, studying, meditating on what's real, knowing the truth as revealed in Scripture. We need to also be like the, the, the Bereans who were noble, who in Acts 17, 11, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures to see if the things taught were so. And the lesson to be learned here, examine all teaching for the truthfulness of its content rather than the attractiveness of its packaging. So we need to go to the God of wisdom, not the wisdom of men. Listen to these words from Paul again in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 to 5. Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. So may our faith not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And I came across this catchy poem that goes just like this. In a day of illusions and other confusions, upon their delusions, they base their conclusions. Remember, the best thing to guard against error is a deep and abiding knowledge of Jesus Christ. Take notice of what books and what blogs you're reading. 
what preachers you're listening to, what resources are filling your mind and dictating what you believe. We all have presuppositions and pre-understandings that we bring to the Word of God. And really, we bring it into every area of our life. It's our worldview. It's how we view and perceive all things. We need to submit to the truth of God's Word and not impose our own preconceived notions of right and wrong, truth and error, moral and immorality. Everything needs to be tested against Scripture. We need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. Don't become prey to those selling something far, far less and, and false. There's a lot at stake because to embrace false teaching would be to deny the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that he is enough. So why listen to, to someone else? Why seek something beyond Jesus Christ? Christ is the wisdom of God. In him, you have everything. So you don't need to listen, or should you listen, to anyone else. Because it's not Jesus Christ plus anything. Not philosophy, not religion, not angels, not mystical experiences. It's Jesus. And that's it. It's Jesus. You're complete in him. He paid your everything to be your everything. May he be our everything. Be immersed in the scriptures and be immersed in Christ, the storehouse of all wisdom and knowledge. Lastly, we turn to Paul's absence. Verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Here, we're reminded again that Paul is not present with these believers. He's in prison, chained to a, a Roman guard. However, he speaks to these saints who, who have never seen him as if he's there with them. He's with them, he says, in spirit. Par Paul is apart from them, but he's expressing his unity with them in spirit. And, he's, and, and what does he say? He rejoices in something that he sees in them. He rejoices in something he sees in them. It's the fact that they're in good order, that they're standing firm and haven't broken rank. They had firmly planted themselves in Christ and Christ alone. And their good order and firmness of faith gave Paul confidence that they would continue on to be able to resist the false teaching. The picture here is of soldiers arranged individually in battle formation. Each soldier in his proper place, his or her proper place, standing firm, resisting the enemy, solidly united, keeping the order intact so as not to have any breaches in the line. And there are many things that bring us joy in life. There are many things that bring us joy. You know, for, for my kids recently, both London and Theo, they both learned to ride a bike without training wheels. And as a parent, I had a sense of joy for, the, for, for them in that accomplishment. However small, it, it brought me joy. Also for Theo, for the longest time, Theo, he couldn't count to 10. He would he'd get all the way to nine, and then he wouldn't, he would say the number four again. And, and it, as frustrating as that was, when he finally got it consistently, and now he knows it like the back of his hand, it was a great feeling. I rejoiced. I was proud of him. Also, the other week, if you know Caleb Spears, I went to go watch his ball hockey game. 
and he scored a goal. He scored a goal in the ball hockey game that I went to watch. And their team played with one person less the whole game. And for me, as his youth pastor, there was a sense of pride, a satisfaction I had in seeing him succeed because he's part of the youth group and, and I know him. So, so we see that there are many things that bring us joy in life from, from just the smallest things. It gives us a sense of, of joy and satisfaction. And here we see what brings Paul joy. What brings Paul joy? Paul, as a minister of the gospel, the great apostle, says what brings him joy is believers, is their firm faith in Christ. That's what brought Paul joy. Believers' firm faith in Christ. And that's what brings a pastor joy. 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's all about your walk and relationship in Christ. It's all about seeing you grow in your faith and dependence on him. Again, this highlights Paul's affection. He's never met any of these people that he's writing to, yet he rejoices in, in their faith in Christ. Paul knows the battle will keep going. The war isn't over, so they need to continue on. They need to be prepared and armed against error. They need to fortify themselves to take guard and be ready. To, to remain committed to Jesus Christ because of the danger of the false teaching. And that's the same message for our church. We need to trust Christ exclusively. He's sufficient and his word is sufficient to address every and all problems of life. And we need to be on guard as well because the danger of false teaching is real and serious. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. Paul's going to get more specific on what kinds of dangers these are. But for now, he's just introducing the topic for us. So may God help our church to be in good order and firm in faith. So we've seen Paul's great struggle for, for the believers to know the riches of knowing Christ so that you would not be deluded by false teaching. Paul's affection, Paul's aim, Paul's admonition, and Paul's absence. A true growing knowledge of Christ will help, you know, will help you know more of his beauty and glory and will help you know more of what you have in him and will help you to be able to discern error. In fact, a true growing knowledge of Jesus Christ will help you navigate every area of your life. So are you moved and motivated by the sufficiency of Christ? Are you looking for something beyond, more than Jesus? Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. We've learned that everything is found in Christ and that in Christ you have everything you need. William Randolph Hearst was a, was a very wealthy newspaper publisher who had an incredible collection of art. The Hearst Mansion in Northern California is a testament to his insatiable desire for artistic treasures. And on one occasion, he learned of some artwork he was determined to obtain. He sent his agent abroad to search for the treasure. And after months of searching and investigating, the agent reported that the treasure had been found. And to further sweeten the fine, Hearst learned that the relic wouldn't cost him a dime. He already owned it. The rediscovered piece was in Hearst's warehouse with many other treasures that had likewise never been uncreated. He actually possessed that which he desired. 
And the story of William Randolph Hearst is the story of too many Christians who don't know what they have, who are seeking spiritual privileges and spiritual provisions and spiritual powers that they already possess in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, do you know what you have in Christ? Do you know what you have in Christ? In every situation, look to Christ alone and his word. Know him, look to him, treasure him, embrace him, study him, abide in him. Everything you need is found in Christ, the one who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that often we don't look to you in trust, but we live in doubt of all that we have in Christ. We thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we're reminded of the words, in whom, that in the person of Christ we have redemption through his blood, in whom we have forgiveness of sins, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the the all-sufficient one. We thank you that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Help us to know Christ's total sufficiency in every area of our life. Help us to know that we're complete in Christ, lacking nothing. Help us as a church to be in good order and steadfast in our faith that we may be able to guard against false teaching. Father, work your word into our minds and hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit for us to know the mind of Christ as revealed in your holy word. Help us to be confident in Christ, our all in all. To him be all the glory. Amen.